2: How are you today, Raph?
0: I'm pretty well. Do I not have to start off by saying
2: you're listening to BBC Radio 4? <laughs> what other impressions could you do? <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Hello, you're listening to Politics on the Couch. I'm Raphael Baer and I'm joined by our producer, Phil Berman. Hi,
2: Phil. Hello there. Still, still remotely, even though most of us have gone back to work.
0: Um, I have I never stopped working <laughs> I've gone back so I haven't physically physically what do you think I do during the day
2: um, don't answer that so I guess this week is Hannah Lewis but first of all what's on your mind this week Raph this feels like the start, start of a new segment what's on Raph's mind
0: I think this Marcus Rashford thing is interesting obviously everyone it's one of those great water cooler moments isn't it that you know a, a Manchester United footballer basically kicks the government over a policy issue full system into a uh, U-turn, it's got so many elements to it. The bit that I think I've been pondering is uh, why it took the government quite a long time, relatively speaking, to realise that they were going to have to do the U-turn. I think part of this is more or less ever since that emblematic Thatcher moment where she said, you know, U-turn if you want to, the lady's not for turning. um, it, It became this sort of symbolically significant Sort uh, of totem of what constitutes political strength. Uh, I think that's an element uh, of it, yeah. and, and also I suppose a feeling that you don't want to do what your enemies have told you to do, because that is a a, a problem and does signal weakness. And one of the ways in which it was actually easier. Number 10 to climb down on the free school meals vouchers. It's because it's Marcus Rashford. And you just say, yes, obviously, let's get him into number 10. Uh, Let's have a photo op. You know, what's not to like about doing what the loved England footballer wants you to do is very, very different from doing what the leader of the opposition wants you to do. I mean, that's a totally different cultural construct. And it's worth noting that there was are going to be a, a vote in the House of Commons, an opposition debate forced on this very issue. And the reason, one of the reasons, obviously, I would have thought number 10 said we've got to U-turn on this now is because it's much better to have headlines and cartoons showing, you know, Rashford kicking the ball, Boris Johnson in the goal, letting it in. Oh, dear. There's a sort of a, a, a cultural softness around that as opposed to 30 Tory MPs rebelled, the opposition made you back down. Those are totally different stories. Uh, So from that point of view, I think there's just a sort of political gamesmanship craft in knowing to whom you are backing down, as well as whether you are backing down. I suppose one of the interesting things about watching what happened with the the U-turn and number 10 and the whole situation was the extent to which it was all accelerated by the social media cycle. So a lot of people were saying, I simply don't believe that Boris Johnson hadn't come across this until now, or how is it possible he hadn't heard about Marcus Rashford's intervention? Um, And Boris Johnson often doesn't tell the truth, I think, so it's a feasible thing to criticise him for. But it's also very possible he wasn't actually looking at Twitter all day, uh, as a lot of his critics are. Uh, and that being prime minister, he genuinely did have other things uh, to attend to. And this brings us quite nicely to our guest for this week, uh, Helen Lewis, who's actually a former colleague of mine. We worked together on The New Statesman, where she was the deputy editor. I was the political editor. Uh, We even recorded a few podcasts together. Since then, she's gone on to really great things. Uh, She's written a fantastic book Uh, About uh, the history of feminism. She is a staff writer on The Atlantic. She is on the steering committee of the Reuters Institute for Journalism in Oxford and generally writes very clever, thoughtful things uh, about the media space and politics uh, and feminism. Uh, And it was, I was really impatient to get into a conversation with her about lots of these things we didn't manage to talk about all of that Uh, and in fact inevitably uh, we ended up talking a lot an awful lot about twitter and social media as happens when two journalists tend to get together and start complaining about the state of the world one of the things that i did for that uh, 2019 election uh, was turn off twitter in 2017 it didn't help it just you know it, it was like dipping my head in a bucket of cognitive bias mm. and it was all bad information but you you've gone further you you've renounced twitter haven't you just talk me through through that decision
1: i think that makes it sound far more principled and grandiose than it currently is i just i had thought all the way through lockdown i thought this is the worst possible time um to be on on twitter because people will both be quite lonely they'll be stripped away from their normal social circles in a lot of cases they'll be bored in a lot of cases they'll be stressed about money and about whether or not they're going to have a job at the end of this you know that maybe be drinking too much all of this suggests that twitter is not good the quality of discourse on twitter is not going to go upwards um and then there was a particularly one particularly vile day um in which i one of my friends just got absolutely monstered for a very reasonable comment which was uh, you know just twisted in in a kind of gr- really grotesque way and i just thought sob this essentially like i left facebook a couple of years ago because i thought not only do i not enjoy doing this on a day-to-day basis i actually think this is fundamentally this platform is probably a net negative for democracy and society so it was a very it was the, the incredibly principled renunciation of a thing you didn't really want to do anyway um and i sort of feel the same about twitter i don't enjoy it why am i what am i doing like why keep doing it why keep sticking your hand into the Bucket of sick. <laughs>
0: there's two different things going on here, aren't there? One is it's bad for your mental health, you know, which I think is true. I mean, I, you know, I, I had a heart attack at the end of last year uh, at the at the culmination of a period of considerable stress. And you know, I'm not going to go. am not going to sue Twitter for pushing me over the edge. I'm pretty <laughs> confident that it wasn't helping my blood pressure levels during the election campaign. So there's that. It's just you know, it it brings out the worst in people. But I'm quite interested in also. The, the sort of the apparatus, you know, the sort of centrifuge
1: mm. that
0: sends people off into into silos and that It's an engine of actual of psychological fragmentation that is actually a bad a, a, on a bigger level. Even though not all that many people are on Twitter,
1: I think that's the thing that people kind of struggle with is the idea that when it's such a tiny group of self-selecting, you know, intensive politics obsessives that make up that corner of Twitter. Why should I, a normal person getting on with my life, going to the garden centre, you know, taking some food around to my elderly parents, care what all of these people are saying? And the problem is that because, quote unquote, opinion formers are on there, unfortunately, it is going to affect, you know, the fact that Donald Trump is on there constantly saying increasingly barking things does unfortunately affect the the rest of us. We all feel the ripples from that. Um, and I think that the problem in the case of journalists is that, again, it's a sort of version of the lobby problem, is that you end up writing for other people on Twitter who are very much like you, who are much likely to be college educated, you know, um, whiter, older, wealthier than the population at large. And, and in the case of the left, particularly, you know, that very particular style, I don't like using the word woke, because I think people read it as very dismissive, but that very particular style of left-wing politics that is, uh, you know, qu- in a, quite an extreme place compared to the rest of the country, but people don't realise that their their opinions are extreme minority opinions because everyone else they know on Twitter holds them. And there is a kind of false sense of consensus that, you know, no, we've won this argument. Only only a bigot could, could entirely disagree with us.
0: You recorded a very interesting interview uh, quite recently w- with uh, a social psychologist, Roy Baumeister, uh, where you end up talking about this phenomenon that some of the most sort of biased people are on sort of metrics of, of how jaundiced their views of the world are uh, can be a highly educated, liberal, progressive minded people, perhaps because they are so confident in their rational immunity from the biases. And I think this happens to a lot of people sitting on Twitter thinking, because I know the word availability heuristic, and because I can say, ha ha, I know this is you know, here I am falling into the trap of of you know insert name of cognitive uh, bias here um somehow it's not touching me but you can't swim in the stream without getting wet
1: yeah and i find extraordinary that i see you know historians that i would have previously respected falling for the most kind of obviously badly edited videos or lazy half truths that happen to conform with things that they already think um and i just think that you know i wish that we were had I actually wish it was taught in schools to some extent, some level of media criticism, because I think the thing that's sad about it is we all talk about kind of deep fake videos and, you know, how terrible it'd be if AI managed to kind of make it look like people were saying one thing and another. You don't need any of that. There was a huge incident a couple of months ago with a video of Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House in the US, where it had been artificially slowed down to make it sound like she was slurring. And and that was all that was just I mean, that was the kind of technology that was available to people in about 1960. You could just run a tape at half, you know, half speed or whatever. And, and people believed it because they wanted to believe it or didn't believe it, but passed it on because they knew that it was a useful tool in their particular prosecuting their particular political attack.
0: I think one of the tricky things there in terms of uh, you know, teaching trust in sources uh, and how to sort of apply critical thinking is that actually, we, there was never any golden age of doing that. But before, when there was a, a, a bottleneck for information and you had a, a handful of media brands, almost at a visual level, people just recognised what a serious source looked like. And, and you know, whether it had the, you know, the, the Guardian or the Financial Times or the Times masthead said someone somewhere has decided that this is valid information. Uh, and you didn't really have to question that. Uh, And actually, there's a a kind of a we need to develop a whole new set of visual and idiomatic literacies to say, hang on, that basically just smells wrong. This doesn't feel like that's going to be a valid source and piece of information. And I don't really know how we how we even begin to do that.
1: Yeah, I read a criticism of Facebook Instant Articles that basically said that, you know, everything ends up with the cool Facebook blue and white, you know, lots of white space decor. You know, and you're reading something on a Facebook page of, uh, you know, sort of you know, make America great again, whatever it might be, you know, something that turns out to then be run by two kids in the Ukraine, right, who just repurposing articles. I mean, which genuinely is something no, it was Macedonia, wasn't it? Um, and it was like people in Macedonia, then sending articles out to the Philippines to be kind of rewritten, running kind of content farms. But because it was on Facebook, it looked the same as a piece from the BBC or the New York Times. I think that's a huge issue. And actually, also, the other problem has been ad funded journalism, um, you know, functionally, particularly now um programmatic ads you know the ones that are automatically saved because there are bidding exchanges um uh, you know that's that's a way that a lot of ads run on a lot of sites they look really crap now because no one's paying any money because they think there's a recession coming and the advertising business has absolutely plunged so even quite what would have looked like quite good news sites are now covered in horrible spammy looking ads um and i think you know the Guardian has been very, you know, is very, very resistant to like what adverts will it allow on its network for exactly that reason that they cheap ads make you look cheap.
0: What what's driving a lot of that isn't editorial or even advertorial decisions; it's algorithms that just produce the content, and the, the algorithm is is fantastically good at just bypassing the rational brain and and serving you up stuff that's made for your id for your most prejudiced side, uh, and it's and it's pretty hard even with the best will in the world, to resist that if you're operating in an infrastructure that's, that's, that's playing on that all the time
1: yeah and also just everything being served in a browser deprives you of those those cues as well the fact that someone's actually taking the trouble to print something on paper you know there's a physical address for it it's in your garage forecourt all of that was all a signal of um you know reliability and, and dependability and it's why the bbc is so contested right because people still do have a huge amount of trust in it and 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 it is fundamentally the thing that isn't when the you know when they're about to watch strictly or whatever it might be it's the it's the news that comes on first So you know the arguments about the BBC are are about the fact that because there is a psychological attachment to it still as uh, as auntie, where people might want to complain about it, they're still watching it.
0: If you bought a newspaper, you didn't then run around to every house in your street saying you have to read this, you have to read this. So that that sharing element, particular, and Twitter is very strong on this, but Facebook as well. You know they they. Zuckerberg talked explicitly didn't he about the sort of the gamification giving people a little dopamine hit that will keep them coming back for more and again that that the sort of and I found this with you know I've struggled with my own Twitter addiction on and off is that sense that you know there is a little frisson of the max retweets that you get, or you post. I post a column and suddenly everyone's sharing it and you're thinking, oh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've reached my hand into the bottomless Pringle tube of gratification because people like something I wrote. Um, and, it's, and it's terrible <laughs> for your judgment because then you start, as you say, you're not just writing for your peers or writing for an audience, uh, you're, you're writing for that, uh, unless you really try not to.
1: Yeah, I mean I think a lot about Jordan Peterson who as you know I interviewed a couple of years ago and uh, you know he and, and I was I went back to a Malcolm Gladwell book uh, I think it's Outliers in which it mentions this Canadian psychologist who does this research about how people who are often very rate very highly on the disagreeableness scale of the, the best innovators. And I thought isn't it fascinating that that Jordan Peterson turned into the current Jordan Peterson that we had have now? And it's about the kind of the pressures of fame and the way that people want one bit of you. And they want more and more of that bit of you. And so one bit of your personality becomes magnified and magnified at the expense of you being a kind of fully rounded human being. And what people wanted from Jordan Peterson was, you know, Jordan Peterson dunks on the social justice warrior. And that was the content they wanted again and again. And every time he did that, they they kind of got the claps for it. And I think that is the danger of of that that viral model is it does that to everybody. It encourages them to to grow and exaggerate one bit of their personality, the bit that gets them the most retweets. So your column saying hmm, this government's done this thing that's quite good, actually, isn't that a surprise, is never going to get the love, right? Whereas your column that says Boris Johnson is a fraud, Tony Blair's a war criminal, Dominic Cummings is, you know, Satan incarnate, people will be like, oh, you know, really big insights here from Raphael Baer, you know, someone telling it like it I've is. I've written two of those three them... columns. I haven't read anyway yet. <laughs> <laughs> Give it time. But you know what I mean? And I, I find it ph- phenomenally depressing because as someone who, you know, self-consciously sort of renounced op-ed journalism when I went to the Atlantic because it's it doesn't have an op-ed section and 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 thought well this is my chance to do more reporting it's it's like choosing to eat you know dry bread instead of you know Haribo um, and I think that's the best. I always think of sugar as the best, um, an, you know, analogy for this. It is like we turned information into sugar. We've made it snackable and delicious. And is it a surprise that people don't want to eat, a, a, you know, a big bowl of porridge? They actually they'd rather have a cream egg.
0: No, because I would always rather have a cream egg. To pursue that metaphor, then it suggests that we've become kind of cognitively obese. You know, that we haven't Ooh. really that we we're, there's this sort of some basic judgment faculties that you need. So you need to actually really work very, very hard once you've gone there to sort of burn that off. But just
1: like obesity, it's a form of malnutrition. That's the point about obesity, right? Obesity isn't you eating, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's just as badly as being deprived of food. It is you, you are ending up with the wrong type of food. It is bad for you. And that's the way to think about information obesity as well, is you feel stuffed full of information but it's just that it hasn't done anything for you. It's not nutritious. I'm
0: going to run with this analogy even further, because I remember you know, one of the you get this political argument around obesity, which is uh, comes down to on one level, a very classic left, right distinction. You know, people should just take responsibility for what they're eating. And there's sort of an individual agency element and you don't have to eat all the bad food or a, a left argument, which is, no, there are structures and what's described as the obesogenic environment. That means particularly you know, if you low incomes who live in certain places they don't have access or time to cook better meals or they have good nutrition and in a way we've we've created the kind of info obesogenic environment where you actually you need actually quite illiberal interventions to say no you're not gonna have you know how, how do you say we're not going to allow this type of information this is bad information i mean that's an incredibly repressive illiberal thing to do much harder to argue in terms of information than in terms of chocolate biscuits
1: yeah i think and i think that is the problem but the interesting thing is um twitter's just trialing a couple of new features one is the idea that you won't be allowed to reply to tweets you can set your tweets to only let the people mentioned in it or only people who you follow repeatedly so you can essentially set the limits of who's allowed to have that conversation directly on your a page which is a kind of the version of where everyone got to with internet comments a couple of years ago where they just went why are we letting any old random do a drive-by saying you know suck it at the bottom of this you know, piece about Rwanda um, and actually let's put some friction in that and ditto something about giving you a prompt to say are you sure you want to retweet this you don't appear to have read it and I think those things psychologically make more sense in the same way that calorie labels just on the front of foods you know, where it just has the red traffic light that says, I don't know if you're aware of this, but biscuits are quite bad for you, is a thing that we can kind of, is a level of nanny statishness that says that just put that friction between you and the chocolate bar psychologically is is very helpful. And if you still want to eat the chocolate bar, you you know, you've made your delicious bed and lie in it.
0: But the reality is that Twitter, Facebook, I mean, these are private companies. They want to make money. Uh, and so you're still in one of these situations where, you know, what, what they want to do is resist regulation by regulating themselves in ways that will make the bad questions for them go away. Uh, and I wonder whether, you know, there is just a macroeconomic issue here in terms of outrage, anger, hatred becoming the traded commodities in the information space, that it's too bad, you just got to regulate harder to, to, to stop that.
1: Yeah, I think as I'm getting older, I'm probably getting more interventionist because i do think you know there's there's very good research that says we're able to just i think it was a the research they did in chimpanzees where they discovered if you combine together sweetness and saltiness that you know that was that was a nightmare because basically they could state you have your body could register the idea that that's enough sweet stuff for now that's enough salty stuff for now but the worst foods were ones that combined that maybe with umami as well because it just you, your brain never sent you the signal that you'd had enough And I think that's probably the same with where we've got to with our information environments. Um, Another uh, interview that I did for The Spark on Radio 4 was with um, Stuart Russell, the AI pioneer. And he said one of the fundamental human rights we should have in the 21st century is the right to live in a fundamentally true information environment. And I have no idea how the hell you would accomplish that. But I thought as an aspiration, I think it's a really good one because I think it's really deforming politics and on a fundamental level, you know, ruining people's lives that they don't—they feel like they live in this sort of hall of mirrors constantly.
0: And well, also the the sense that uh, you know that there's never there's never an end to your internet information session. You never you never get to the last page of the newspaper. I remember you know one of the good pieces of advice that was given to me, possibly by you, in fact, uh, in in terms of just steering clear of social media, <laughs> was ask yourself the question. What is it you're actually looking for here? You know, what is the thing that you will find or read that will make you go, "Oh, right!" And now this session of looking at the internet has come to a natural conclusion, um, and that that just doesn't exist.
1: Yeah, I have some terrible things that I do now. So now, what I do when I'm watching TV is that I cross stitch. I'm cross stitching a huge um, Hokusai. Um, you know, the Great Wave. Um, which is about 10 inches by 16 inches. It's, it's, it's my Bayer tapestry. But I do that while I'm watching, you know, The Sopranos or whatever it might be on television instead of also looking at my phone. Um, and there are practical things that you can do. I mean, smartphones are a huge part of this, right? Because they are again, they're kind of little tiny, you know, one-arm bandits that you keep in your pocket. Things like setting your phone to grayscale, so you don't get those cues from red, you know, which is a kind of a signal of urgency. You know, red things popping up—they're a lot less um, stimulating. Turning off all notifications. You know, don't never have push notifications on your phone. Make it so you have to make an active choice to go and seek out information. Um, I don't have any, you know, breaking news alerts. Um, and then fundamentally, when you're working as well, I put my phone onto loud ringer mode and then turn it upside down. You know if anybody really needs me, if anyone's sort of died or needs rescuing from being down a well, then they'll phone me. But I'm not going to see the constant ping 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 of my whatsapp notifications, and those are the things that kind of keep me psychologically in a healthier relationship with information.
0: You make that sound you know almost idyllic, you know that you you've you've found this this golden mean between being available to you know, if, if Lassie can't bark about the child down the well through your door, they can get you on the phone, but otherwise you're, you're insulated from some of the madness. Is, it, is that working for you or are you actually finding it quite challenging?
1: No, it's. I find it as difficult as I do every single day not to have, you know, the second Marks and Spencers ice and spiced bun. It's a constant struggle, and I envy enormously the people for whom, you know, they they go, oh well, I don't read the news. Just as much as I envy the people who go, oh no, I just I, I struggle to keep the weight on. Actually, you know, it's it, it's a process constantly. I don't think there'll ever be a, a point when I will have renounced the internet and renounced news because that, you know, I'm because I'm human, and and that's the process of being you know not only have I trained my brain through years of political journalism to do this but it was you know it's responding to some pretty large cues you know we are so uh as a species you know the th- things that are new are exciting to us and things that are bad you know our ancestors would not have survived had they gone yeah it's probably not a lion I should probably let that one go you yeah. uh, know yeah because you know that's these are things that are deeply deeply woven into you know millennia of of our development.
0: This is what I find very difficult when you know the conversations with the conversation we had last week with Bobby Duffy and the conversations and the things you read about uh, psychology and how it intersects with politics is that it seems to be this constant battle between a hyper modern environment that has vastly outstripped what our thick troglodyte brains are sort of capable of processing. And the danger is that makes you very pessimistic. You think that we're sort of we're running bewildered um, unable to distinguish between a, a lion and a caramel wafer and, you know, wh- what the hell are we supposed to do? So, but yeah, sh- how do you sort of find the the agency and the optimism to go, no, actually, this is available for us to control and, and, and change?
1: There's a book by um, Sarah Blaffer Hardy, I think it's called The Woman Who Never Evolved, which is, talks about the fact that, you know, pre-agriculture, Human mothers would have had to basically murder any child if they already had had one that they were carrying, and they had another one. They would, that was it. You couldn't you couldn't manage that because you were constantly on the move. Whereas now we just think this is the most abhorrent thing in the world. For all that there are lots of things that are woven very deeply into our you know the history of humanity, we've also changed an enormous amount. We we are inf- incredibly adaptable. The idea that we live in flats and you know use mobile phones. And wear seat belts, you know, and no longer burn witches. All of these things show that there's a huge amount of flexibility in the human brain and human society. So, I think that the, the thing that's different to me is about, you know, always trying to focus on the structures. How do you make it easier for people to 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 live with the brains that you know that they've they've inherited that they've been been given? And and as a journalist, that's an interesting question to me, both to cover and also to to inform how I do the job and how we structure journalism itself. Okay, here's a question
0: for you then, which is if you want to be positive about
1: things that we've talked about very
0: negatively, and you mentioned witch burning, I'm not about to defend witch burning, by the way. Okay, all this stuff that happens on Twitter, on the internet, it's all vile and horrible, and there's a lot of nasty, aggressive language out there in particular, but actually... At least it has evolved and migrated to the level of speech and language and performance. And relative to hundreds, thousands of years where people would li- actually killing each other, this is a kind of progress that we've 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 sort of virtualized what actually would have been settled with fists and knives and guns. Not Isn't all that, that the long Clausewitz
1: ago. Clausewitz quote, which I say I only know because it's I think it's in Civ Five. You know, war is the continuation of diplomacy by other means. I sort of think that. Twitter is the continuation of war by other means. So yeah, (laughs) if you're going to be optimistic about it, I would rather have... A, a virtual stoning than an actual stoning, and and maybe that is the the note of of optimism that we can kind of end on. Also, the other thing is that you can you can leave, and I have always thought this about Twitter, like a pub that is a rough pub where people are always get into fights in the car park, and someone at, you know half ten on a Friday night snaps a snooker queue in half and starts threatening people. Most people don't want to go to that pub, and the pub has eventually has difficulty attracting business. Um, And I I wonder whether to some extent that that will happen with, with social networks, is that actually people will get kind of tired of them. I think it's very hard to see things when they're in their totally ascendant phase and everyone's completely in love with them. But, you know, there's no no one's on MySpace anymore. These things aren't necessarily a kind of thousand year Reich. They don't have to exist forever
0: yeah i think that's true and and the the fact that yeah the president of the united states happens to be behind the bar in this particular pub makes it weirdly compelling (laughs) to visit but yeah he won't be forever and i i I agree i think there will come a point where we will go look back and go "God, do you remember that weird period you know when everyone was talking about twitter and it was you you in every news story would be actually you'd get whole news stories written on the basis of outrage at x where you think well there's only outrage at X because you're writing about it. That's not, you know, this is a totally self sustaining bubble of 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 information and news. It's not actually a real right. thing. And,
1: and if Twitter or the internet generally becomes more like real life, which I think weirdly this pandemic has made it, you know, people no longer talk about things happening kind of on the internet, right? It's not like it's a sort of separate space. It's, a, it's woven into fabric of everyday life. In normal life and in, you know, in communication through speech and in face to face. We have all these signals, phatic signals that are given off that are just not just the content of the words being said, that allow us to judge quite quickly whether or not someone's a a, a nutter. And we kind of need to develop them. I you know, you can look at Donald Trump's tweets and the sort of random capitalization and then the sort of weird shouty bits where he just says transition to greatness. And you can see where you go, well those don't look like someone who would be really great at running a large advanced economy. And 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 maybe that's the other thing is that we're going to get much better at reading Uh, You know, digital communications in the way that we do face to face ones. And a lot of this has been the teething problems of moving life into a, a digital sphere.
0: And a socialization issue as well. I think we will develop protocols and conventions, j- just as you've always had, you know, you don't eat with your hands, you eat with a knife and fork, uh, there will, for good hygiene reasons, there will become social digital hygiene protocols, such as actually, if you're sitting down with your friends, everyone turns their phone off and puts it in, in their pocket, doesn't sit there looking at the screen. It's, it's, it's reasonable to think that we might actually sort of mm. socially evolve away from just using digital technology like savages.
1: That's what I tell myself. Excellent.
0: I think that's a good note on which to to finish because we do like to round this podcast off with some optimistic thoughts. So let's not plunge back into the pessimism. Um, I would add just we can cut this bit out if you like later, Phil. But if you do want to to develop a mechanism for self-discipline, both in terms of avoiding politically induced stress and uh, high calorific, high lipid content foods, have a massive heart attack really helps. It's an absolute (laughs) winner.
2: Okay, I thought thanks for that, Raph. I thought you were about to say listen to our, listen to our podcast because it sort of diverts you away from the internet for forty-five minutes. But
1: also but listen that, to our that podcast. That
0: <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> but I, I, mainly I, 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 block your own yeah, arteries. Yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't recommend it if other ways work, but it definitely yeah. helped get me off the cholesterol. I'll tell you that much. I have to say thank you to helen for taking so much time to have what i thought was a really interesting conversation and i must also stress please also do go and buy her book difficult women which you can now get in actual bookshops uh, which are open and when you do go into one of those bookshops please buy lots and lots of books um phil did you have anything to add to that i need to digest that conversation a little bit more because it is enjoyable but also gave me a lot
2: to think about maybe we should sort of say that there was perhaps a little less formal psychology this week it's a journey we're going on here
0: i think that's absolutely right Uh, well a journey that is perhaps harder to sustain if neither of the people involved is a qualified psychologist but i think we should be honest and upfront about that and ultimately
2: hold on a second I'm, i'm a qualified armchair psychologist
0: OK, well, in that case, I'm your sort of Padawan learning student in this. You're the, you're the sort of Jedi armchair psychologist and I'm the, the Padawan. Uh, ultimately, I think what we're trying to do here is understand some of the processes that make us both feel a bit uncertain and ambivalent about the state of politics as we observe it. And one of the great things about talking to Helen is she has a kind of liquid intelligence that that flows into all the different cracks. Uh, of what of of the edifice Uh, and that is in itself has been quite a restorative psychological process to be to be part of that so thanks Helen
2: thanks very much indeed for listening Uh, make sure that you share the episode if you liked it and also subscribe because that's the best way of finding out when our next episode goes live which will be very shortly thanks very much indeed for listening bye-bye